Did you hear my Google go off? No. Might have picked that up on my mic. I said I had to, you know, G it. My my little uh, fucking bullshit robot slave lord kicked in. Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the weekly movie review podcast that dreams are made of. I haven't said that in a while. Keith Foster, you are the co-host from San Diego, California. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, God, what's up? What's new? Nothing. I'm still inside, just like everyone else. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm good. I'm doing well. You are Cassidy Robinson. I am um, in a cave right now. Um, and yeah. I am making uh, uh, internet signal with a potato and a tinfoil antenna. Great. Uh, no, I I actually am doing pretty good. Like, at least I have a yard so I can go out and stretch my legs. I, mm-hmm. uh, I've i been working out a lot, uh, actually. Is that, know, uh, is that what the uh, post-quarantine Keith is going to be, like, super buff? and? I'm not going to lie. I'm not doing bad. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm not like jacked, but I right. I feel like this is the fittest I've ever been. Are you um, posting? Are you posting all your gains on uh, on your Instagram? No, no, no. I did post my massive beard. That's growing too. I did um, see that. I noticed that before I noticed any any uh, flexing going on. But yeah, so, you know, that's one good thing that's come out of this. Like, we've been doing a lot of yard work. Mm-hmm. Um, like, we planted a nice little garden in front of our fence. Uh, yeah, it's just, it hasn't been too bad. I, I hung up some yard lights that are nice. Like, mm-hmm. I'm, you started I'm a jug band? Not yet. Maybe it's soon. You on uh, the bathtub base, like, you know, the, the metal bathtub with a yeah, couple strings. Yeah, the, the washer. That would be Andrew. Andrew's scratching the washer at okay. the washing board and uh, Ashley on the jugs. Okay, wait, what am I doing then? You took washboard away from me. Yeah, I gave that to Andrew. He's scratching the washboard. You okay. have, like, the big metal tin bathtub with the two strings on a stick. Oh, no, you know? that's, that is the wrong choice. Um, <laughs> I feel, I, I, guess, I guess I could do it like a little boom, 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 yeah. boom, 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 boom. <laughs> we'll give you very limited <laughs> options. <laughs> okay, well. Get my country bears on. What we have planned for today is uh, we're going to be reviewing the movie Extraction, which was a direct-to-Netflix release that came out a few weeks ago. Um, and it was funny, I saw, I think it was on the front page of IMDb, it was like boasting like, thank you for making Extraction the number one film in America. It's like, well, uh, yeah. <laughs> I guess, I guess. Exactly, like, sure, <laughs> I mean, no, nobody's... I, if you want to take credit for that. Tiger King yet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then for the uh, streaming homework... Everything we're doing is streaming, but for the streaming homework, we're going to be doing uh, the 2015 thriller, psychological thriller, The Gift, which is also um, available to watch right now on Netflix. A little bit of follow-up from the last episode. Uh, we did a we did a fun little episode where we talked about the uh, best film 
made by a bad director and the worst film made by a good director. We talked about um, uh, The Lady Killers and Event Horizon. And mm-hmm. friend of the podcast, Alec Ingerson, actually shared with us his uh, list of this exact subject that he had made on the website Letterbox. Um, so I, uh, I figured I'd just read these. I think it's kind of fun. We kind of weigh in on this. So this is his not great directors that somehow made a great movie or two list. And at the top of it, he mentions Event Horizon. His next choice is a little bit of a hot take. District 9 by Neil Blomkamp. Okay. Oh, pump your brakes. <laughs> uh, uh, what? Okay, right. I, I I will straight up admit, that, not admit, I, man, I will go to the fucking fences. I, I'm, li- listen to me, I'm heated up. I don't even, I'm mixing my metaphors. I don't you even got, know what I'm saying right now. You got big I, mad already. That, <laughs> like, threw me off. Uh, okay. I'll say this about Neil Blomkamp, and you can tell me if you agree or disagree. I think Neil Blomkamp is a great director, uh, but he's yet to really fully live up to the promise of District 9. I think he's gotten close here or there. Yes. Uh, but I don't think that he's a bad filmmaker. I think he's, I don't know, it could be like a situation where like studios have messed with his stuff too much. or he, I like, also think has too many ideas that he, he like can't like whittle down into one solid plot or you know a few different things but i think i think it's more of a, a thing of i think he is a fucking fantastic director mm-hmm. uh maybe not the best writer um maybe right. you know maybe he should have um uh like a writing team or something yeah um, if he but, collaborated with a, a more a more solid writer if it was, if it was oh like man him and alex garland fucking, or something yes i was just gonna say alex garland oh my god <laughs> and alex garland neil blomkamp collab would be so fucking cool i do feel like my least favorite of his is probably elysium but I got a real soft spot in my heart for Chappie. I think that's a good movie. I think Chappie's underrated. But yeah, it kind of rubbed people the wrong way when it first came out. Okay. Uh, the next movie he had on his list is Speed by Jan Debat. Now, Jan Debat's not like known as like a great filmmaker, but I like Twister for what it is. I don't... I think I would have to like... I'm going to have to check his... His IMDb page. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think Twister's his most other well-known other film. Oh, uh, oof, oof. no. Um, okay, yeah. Twister's good. Twister's not bad. It's fun. It's very nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, I mean, he, he's only directed five movies: right. Speed, Twister, Speed Two, Cruise Control, yeah, oof. The Haunting, not um, good, yeah. And Laura Croft, Tomb Raider, The Cradle of Life. So also not great. Yeah, I don't think that that's that harsh of a uh, of an assessment to say. Speed is by far his best movie. And no, it's not. He d- he did say a uh, list of directors that somehow managed to make one or two good films. Yes, so. absolutely. Uh, next, he uh, has Independence Day. Um, which is uh, directed by Roland Emmerich, who another like '90s uh, disaster film guy. Um, I really like Stargate, the first Stargate. I think that's uh, a cool movie that sort of 
even though I had a TV series and everything, like, sort of forgotten about now. Um, mm-hmm. For being, like, an early, big uh, special effects film from the 90s. But yeah, I, I, Stargate and Independence Day, I think, are his best films. From there, it gets pretty spotty. Universal Soldier, bro. Yeah, there's that, I guess. Uh, let's <laughs> see. Uh, the next on his list is the movie Disturbia, uh, the Shia LaBeouf thing, by DJ Caruso. That probably is his best movie because that guy made a lot of bad, a lot of bad movies. And you're just saying. Actually, names to didn't me. DJ Caruso? I believe, if I'm not wrong, I'll edit it out of the podcast if I am. You can IMDb this for me because I'm like switching apps on my phone right now. Um, yeah. DJ Caruso, I believe, also directed The Salton Sea, which is pretty cool. I think that was his yeah, first Yeah, he film. did. I yeah. actually, yeah. But then he made yeah, stuff like I Am Number about, Four. That's about it, though. Yeah. Uh, uh, he did another one that I. Uh, Triple uh, X, The Return of Xander Cage. <laughs> uh, next on the list is Wedding Crashers by David Dobkin. I'm not as familiar with his... Um, okay, he also I'm, did The Shanghai Knights, Clay Pigeons, The Change Up. Yeah. Uh, he also directed R.I.P.D., so yikes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know what? don't remember Wedding Crashers being a good movie. It was one of those comedies. There was like a big handful of comedies that came out around the same time. It was like that and Dodgeball and and yeah. um, Old School and a few others. Yeah, like the everybody, early 2000s, the right, frat and, pack. Yeah, and, and Grandma's Boy. And there was all these movies that people like quoted like crazy and said were great. And I just never saw them because I was like... My head was like all the way up David Lynch's ass at the time and just had like <laughs> zero interest in those kind of movies at that time. So there's to like me, this whole generation of comedy that I missed and I don't want to watch them now, not because I think they're bad, but because I don't want to be the guy who's quoting Dodgeball in 2020. I mean, Dodgeball's fine. Uh, or to me, <laughs> when it comes to like early 2000s comedies, there's like sort of the Judd Apatow and Adam McKay, and then there's kind of everything else. So that's sort of where I stand on that. Right. Yeah. Uh, the next on its list is The Disaster Artist, um, which is, of course, directed by uh, James Franco. And James Franco did a lot of, like, book adaptations and, like, pseudo-artsy-fartsy stuff. Um, the only other movie I think I've seen that he did that was directed um, was... Uh, Something leather bar. Yeah, interior leather bar, which was like the most James Franco thing ever. It was like he was he had it was reimagining the deleted scenes from the movie Cruising, because the legend of the movie Cruising is that um, that there was a bunch of stuff that got cut out of the movie because it was like too sexual and too like overtly homoerotic and stuff. So James Franco decides he's going to reimagine what it would be like to film those scenes and it's sort of like a fake documentary about him revisiting doing these scenes and like the the internal struggle that the actors go through to be able to have explicit gay sex on camera okay moving on (laughs) moving on (laughs) that's everything you need to know about james franco's 
<laughs> movie career. Yeah, I, I, James Franco. Directing career. Um, yeah, uh, uh, the King of Kong, which was a documentary uh, by Seth Gordon. I didn't know. Okay, so it shows here that he also did Horrible Bosses, which I like the first one. Um, Baywatch, yeah. I heard was pretty bad. Identity Thief, I heard was pretty bad. He also did the documentary Freakonomics, which people liked, and he did the movie Four Christmases, which was pretty bad. So that's a good assessment well, there. Also, uh, King yeah. of Kong is great, though. That's like an all-time great documentary. Totally. Uh, he mentioned he lists uh, thirteen, the uh, debut film debut, I believe, by uh, Catherine Hardwick, who would later go on to do uh, the first Twilight film and a few other kind of like dumb pulpy teenage things. Um, thirteen was like kind of like a post kids, post a girl interrupted sort of teenagers on the wild, messed up life kind of stuff. Yeah, I think I saw that. I think it was uh good if not depressing right it was like that early 2000s depressing indie movie thing yeah um speaking of uh he lists and this i completely disagree with uh the virgin suicides by sofia coppola who i think has done a number of great films including lost in translation which i think is his best film or her best film rather and she should have won best picture that year um and uh, I really like the movie Somewhere. Um, yeah, and The Virgin Suicides. Not everybody has to be a great director. Not mm. every director has a great movie in them. And I think it's okay for some directors to just be solid to, or to have some some decent stuff that maybe pings a little bit higher than other stuff. Like Because right. if you don't, have the stuff to measure greatness against how does great exist you know i don't know maybe i'm i'm getting philosophical i i i'm gonna <laughs> just chalk this to being locked up and uh only being able to talk to two people every day um the next on its list is diary of a mad black woman i have never seen well that's that. uh Tyler, Tyler Perry, Perry film. Right? Um, yes, it is. But I've never seen any other of his movies. I'm trying to think if I've seen a Tyler Perry movie. Okay, but here's the thing. He's made a million so, of them. Yeah, and I can't believe that they're all total trash. No, and I mean, I think if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, Diary of a Mad Black Woman, they kind of sell it as this ridiculous comedy with Medea and she's on the cover and she's in all the trailers mm. and stuff. But if I'm not wrong, that movie is actually much more of a drama. If you actually watch it, like she's the silly side character who then became her own, like Mickey mouse of the Tyler Perry, uh, empire. But I, well, I think it's more like, uh, earnest. Sure. But before that, more comparable. <laughs> but before that, she was just like a peripheral character in this otherwise pretty serious movie. Um, I could be, you know, correct me if I'm wrong on that, but I've never seen any of them, I don't think. All I will say about Tyler Perry is, it's not for me, I oh. don't get it, but I'm not going to necessarily say it's bad. Okay. Maybe one of these niche episodes that we decide to do, we tackle T-Pair. Oh my god, uh, I think nobody's I ever about called him that. Uh, uh, but yeah, so maybe we have to to yeah do some some Tyler Perry stuff soon. I think it's worth it. Maybe okay. So we do have a movie news segment that I wanted to do. 
because uh, we did have a few stories that people seemed interested in. This one especially, which surprised me. There is a Dragon's Lair movie coming to Netflix with Ryan Reynolds starring because he's contractually obligated to be in every movie now. Um, okay. Now, do you remember Dragon's Lair? Yeah. It's the uh, Don Bluth video game. No, I I know. I'm familiar. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. are, are, yeah. So it was like uh, an animated video game. And I, I'm not like super familiar, but I know like the iconography, like another characters and stuff. And yeah, uh, I believe for the uninitiated, that's the game they're playing at the arcade in season two of Stranger Things. That sounds about right. Yeah, and I think it's like 98% just cutscenes of Don Bluth animation. <laughs> it's just really him, uh, an excuse for him to like show off, you know, his animation at that time. I actually didn't know it was uh, Don Bluth. Yep. I mean, it it makes sense. It definitely looks like his style, but I actually just didn't know that was... But yeah, so Netflix movie, Ryan Reynolds. I'm glad so, it's going to be on Netflix because maybe we'll actually be able to see it in, in anytime soon. My question is, it, uh, and maybe the story goes into this. I, this is the first I'm hearing of it. Is it um, is it animated? The Hollywood Reporter reported yesterday that Netflix closed a deal for the rights to the game, and that Reynolds is aboard to star and courtesy his production label Maximum Effort. Don Bluth, the ex Disney animator who both designed and illustrated the original game, is also a producer. Bluth and partner Gary Goldman in 2015 turned to Kickstarter and Indiegogo to raise the money for the big screen adaptation of their game, but were unsuccessful. The game memorably cameoed in the first uh, yeah, first episode of Netflix Stranger, Stranger Things Season 2. Blah, blah, blah. The script is being worked on by Dan and Kevin Hageman, who paired up for the 2014 Lego movie. Um, Netflix's oh, okay. Dragon Lair is a live action adaptation. There you go. Mm, okay, I'm less interested now. Um, we'll see. You know what? I I know so little about the lore and narrative of Dragon's Lair that it can really be whatever it wants to be, and it's not going to offend me all that much. But I, no. there are people for whom they have more investment. And and Ryan Reynolds does like look. Like the guy, kind of. Yeah. Uh, I always thought he looked like Steve Martin, personally. Um, well, yeah, Steve Martin's who, a little but, old now, but yeah, yeah. But you know, if it was a cartoon, great. Um, I don't know. I guess it's just. I guess I'm just kind of bummed at, at just how much animation isn't being made, um, especially when that's not CGI, that's not Disney. Like, right? I, I was kind of hoping that. Uh, Spider-Verse might change that a little bit. And yeah, I don't know. Animation takes a long time, so it's hard to say that it hasn't greenlit some projects. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I don't know. I I guess I, I would have just been more interested had they decided to do animation, especially since like Don Bluth hasn't fucking done anything in forever. Right, um, right. So I, yeah. I guess I'm curious... And if if not a little disheartened. Uh, also, fun fact, apparently you can play Dragon's Lair on the Nintendo Switch. We play everything on the Nintendo Switch. You should look That's up Poppin' Twinbee Rainbow Fun Adventure. Um, 
Jim Gaffigan to play Toronto Mayor Rob Ford in a limited series in the works for AMC. Rob Ford, famously yeah. the the uh, Toronto Mayor who uh, got caught smoking crack and I believe still somehow got reelected. Uh, yeah, uh, he's a big old piece of shit from what I remember. He he. Uh, I remember people kind of said he was like a real life version of Homer Simpson if Homer Simpson smoked crack. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I'm into this. Uh, Jim Gaffigan, I think taking is his dark funny. turn. Yeah, I I think this could be really good for him. I'm I'm into it. Oh, I have played Pop and Twinby. Yeah, <laughs> there's a deep high school reference cut, and it went over your head. I had to Google it. All right. Oh, this one's interesting-ish. This is for the video gamers out there. Another video game thing. Kate Blanchett in talks to play Lilith from Borderlands in a film adaptation. Okay. <laughs> There's a lot going on there. Um, <laughs> I mean, I guess I don't know. I have we have we cracked the the comic book co- or not comic book the video game code yet? Uh, not um, yet. I don't know. Uh, uh, are we not counting Detective Pikachu as a success story? Mm, I mean, it's a movie. Um, it, it's decent. Um, it's good. It's it's. I mean, it's about as good as any video game adaptation has been so far. Is it like super memorable? Like people are still really excited about it. I don't know about that. Uh, I yeah. Is it is it a, a successful enough model that people are going to use it in the same way that like Sam Raimi's Spider Man cracked the comic book movie code? Fair, fair point. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't know. I guess I don't really care about this story. <laughs> um. <laughs> well, I've never played Borderlands. I, I know that it's like uh, action adventure, like post apocalypse thing. Uh, yeah, but it, but it's sort of known for its like tongue in cheek sense of humor. Like it's 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 pretty meta. Uh, it's very colorful, very flashy. I mean, they're fun games, but I don't need a movie of it. Yeah, I guess if you're like a movie of Borderlands, I think it, the most successful version would sort of feel like a Mad Max Deadpool movie. Okay, I get you. So that that could be fun, and you know, I mean, I love Kate Blanchett, so uh, more power to her. Uh, yeah, but and you know, we want to believe the Kate Blanchett. She's kind of a prestigious actor. I think it's a little like hard to get her in just anything. So maybe there was something about this particular project, the way it was pitched to her, that she it sounded more promising than if they'd come to her with like, I don't know, like. Be in the uh, Pop and Twinby, the Pop and Twinby movie. <laughs> that would <laughs> excite what I want, me though. more personally. Last story. This one's kind of a big one. Taika Waititi to direct new Star Wars film. Uh, yes, give him all the movies. Yes, I'm on board. Kudos. I think Star Wars as a movie franchise needs a fucking kick in the ass. You know, if we're going to start fresh without Skywalkers and Vaders and such, um, and we we know he can work 
well within the confines of like a very produced universe like the MCU um but still give it some flair i i am all for anything this man does also he was in and directed an episode of the mandalorian and it's it's That's true. one of, and it's such a good like again e- even though it's within the confines of the star wars universe it still feels very uh fresh and and you can see his sort of dna all over it so uh, yeah. yeah, give give him everything. I mean, I'm feeling some pretty serious Star Wars fatigue at this point. I think the last emotional roller coaster that was the 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 most recent trilogy. Maybe I'll maybe I'll start calling it the uh, the Dark Knight Rises effect, where you see a movie and you're like, yeah, that was good. Like it, a lot of stuff wrong with it, but. It was good, and then the diminishing returns upon memory. The further away you are from it, it's just the less favorable you feel about it. Okay, so again, not to relitigate Rise of Skywalker too much. I feel sort of the opposite, though. Like, like, the, yeah, I, I, I think it's a similar thing. But like, like when I rewatch those movies. I remember the stuff I like about him versus the stuff I didn't like. But yeah, the further I get from it, the more I remember the stuff I don't like. I don't mm-hmm. know. It's weird. Yeah. I have a we- I mean, everybody I feel like has sort of a complicated relationship to those movies unless you're 10. And then right. you can just enjoy Star <laughs> Wars just, for Star Wars. Yeah. Uh, enjoy them is, the way they're intended to be enjoyed. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I think, you know, they're still doing something right. I, I get anyone who says they have star wars fatigue uh i that I, to- I think that's totally fair it's totally understandable you know this is early talks so right. there's we know there's going to be very little to nothing about it yeah there's going to be some time I, I i mean there are so many fucking rumors about the star wars universe right now that unless it's like stuff attached to the mandalorian i'm kind of taking everything with a little bit of a grain of salt, because, uh, you know, like, there were, uh, the fucking Game of Thrones people were set to do a whole new trilogy, right. and then they fucking just screwed the pooch on Game of Thrones, which is, like, the pop cultural fumble of the millennium, I think. And uh, Ryan Johnson was supposed to do his own trilogy, which who knows if he's still going to do that. They just announced this thing about this, like, Star Wars movies that they're going to do, like, 500 years in the future or some bullshit. So I'm like, I... Yeah, you're literally giving me a migraine talking about this. (laughs) Exactly. Like, I kind of don't really care unless it starts, like, until we start to see stuff from it. Right. Um, but on paper, of all the proposed Star Wars projects, this is the one that I'm like, yes, I have such faith in Taika Waititi. Uh, that's the one I want. So, yeah. it, you know, if, if I, I just had to hope pick that it's, up- and maybe this wouldn't do as well because like people hated Solo kind of for this reason, but I just hope it's kind of light and fun and genre and not too buried in lore and greek tragedy and stuff that star wars has done a hundred times i agree and i again i think taika is the guy to do that yes all right 
let's go ahead and move on to the first review of the day, of the night. Uh, we'll be reviewing Extraction from Netflix. Tell me what happens in this movie. What is this movie about? Oh, God, is that really his fucking name? Um, Chris Hemsworth plays Tyler Rake, a mm -hmm. fearless black market mercenary who's gets called to extract a son of a drug lord from another drug lord. Uh, in India. In India. Chris Hemsworth is this big, badass, military mercenary guy uh, with a death wish who gets hired for this impossible, dangerous job to go and infiltrate this drug lord's uh, city in India and rescue the son of another drug lord um, mm -hmm. and, and take him home. And the people who hire him also like end up wanting to get the kid for their own reasons. So it's, it's a, yeah, it's a rescue mission movie. And uh, at, at one point he has pretty much everybody against him. Right. So he has like uh, um, the army of one drug lord, another, the, uh, the army of the other drug lord, um, and he has the police who are in on it for some reason after him and, uh, everybody else he meets along the way wants to kill him. I called this movie when I was watching it, everybody gets shot. The movie. <laughs> <laughs> like the body count in this movie is insane. I've never, I haven't seen this many people die on screen in a long time. Yeah. It's, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty brutal. <laughs> um, yeah. I, it's. It's also, uh, I mean, it's a. It, this is an action movie. This is a movie for guys who like movies. Right. Uh, on TBS or TNT or whichever fucking one. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, it, this movie feels like it came out, or this feels like I, I don't know. Yeah, it's it feels like a throwback to like an old era of movies in kind of a sure. way. Um, There's a but, little bit of Rambo and Commando yeah. and like the badass cinema days, but then there's also like a post-born, post-taken kind of vibe as well. Exactly, it's it's like a with it's that kind of story, but with like a little bit more of a modern sensibility. So, yeah. I mean, the story here is paper thin. Like, yeah. like it is, it is straight up like. You're a badass. We need you to be a badass. And he's like, all right, I'll be a badass. You know, uh, that's my Chris Hemsworth. Uh, that's the best Australian I got right now. Uh, fuck off. Uh, anyway, and, and then he's just like, yeah, I'm going to fucking kill a bunch of dudes. And then he does. And uh, it's yeah. very sad. Like, I will say the action is shot real well. Mm -hmm. um, these Again, it, I think it's sort of sort of perfected the style that you're talking about with the Jason Bourne. Uh, real brutal. You can feel yeah. it in your bones kind of action. Like, let's not make it cheesy or corny. Um, let's, you know, let's try to make it as grounded, but as grounded. But also stylized. As, like, there's, yeah, it, there's definitely... grounded, but spectacular as possible. Right. Yeah. Because there's definitely, like, long stretches of very tight bike choreography going on because there's a lot of these very long single takes and the movie's like pretty showy about it as far as you know we're gonna go up, up and down the stairs there's even a little bit not done nearly as artfully in my opinion but there's a little bit of the raid 
Yeah, like kind of uh, almost uh, action kung fu Not kung fu, but like that kind. I, I know what you're saying. A little like, bit of like a martial arts vibe to it as far as where they decide to keep the camera and how uh how many like single takes they do and stuff like that like these set pieces are very constructed yes um, when and they go into I- them even though there's a little bit of that like jason Bourne, um shaky cam everybody's covered in dirt kind of thing too yes but but it's a lot more the the thing when i say they perfected it it's because you can actually see what's going on and can actually tell like I yeah. think that the like the Jason Bourne movies or the Taken movies, like a, a lot of times that type of action tends to be shot very muddily. Um, it you know it's very shaky and and disorienting and like you don't know what's going on. And I'm not a fan of that. Mm-hmm. But the action in this is is very clear, like very uh uh you want the you get to see him do everything and you know who's doing what to who. The entire time. And and so I'll give it a lot of credit, uh, action credibility. It's yeah, a good I think thing. There's a lot of technical um, prowess going on here. And I, I should say the uh, cinematographer, um, uh, who in my opinion is the star of the film, uh, Newton Thomas Siegel, who also shot Drive and Three Kings and The Usual Suspects, among other films. Um, oh, it looks, should, the movie should. looks really good. Yeah, the, uh, it, it's very clear, actually. Um, the same guy who shot Drive, that's uh, pretty fun. Yeah, the, and it's a good thing it looks good, because, again, the story is pretty bleh. <laughs> the characters are pretty, like, I, I love Chris Hemsworth. It, it was almost like they told him to have anti-charisma in this, or, or I think it's more just like, He's trying to get away, you know, I get why he's doing what he's doing. He's trying to get away from Thor. He's trying to get away from, uh, and, you know, that's kind of all they gave him in Men in Black uh, mm-hmm. was like, do your Thor thing. You know, we, we got you two from Thor because Thor was good. So right. uh, you and guys just do that and everyone will love it. And and I do appreciate that this isn't trying to make him like the uh, like a fun relatable guy but you know it's there there's a couple silly parts too like where he just like fucking jumps off that cliff and sits yeah. underwater for 5 minutes or something um right <laughs> right pr- that's pretty dumb um it seems like, like a type of movie that was written for Vin Diesel but they didn't get Vin Diesel yeah, it, it was like it was written for Vin Diesel and and or it was like a triple X sequel that was like retooled. Totally, but but I think it's better than those kind of movies because it's it's not as dumb. Yeah, and, and I think that's almost entirely because of the action, because of the way it's shot, because right. they try to give it that that sensibility. Um, and there is a uh, Marvel connection here because the director, uh, Sam Hargrave, it was uh, most notably a stunt coordinator for a lot of the Marvel films. Okay. Also, uh, this was written by uh, Joe Russo has like a, has a, writing a co-writing credit. Yeah. So it seems like it was a, maybe the guys were on set for Civil War or something and they were like, you know what, would be a badass movie. What if this drug dealer's kid was kidnapped and Chris Hemsworth has to, like, kill every brown person in India? (laughs) Um, Which is my other note of criticism. I think the optics 
of blonde haired, blue eyed Chris Hemsworth coming in and just viciously Fucking murdering up a, bunch a of lot Indian of people. Indians is a little uncomfortable. I, I mean, I don't, I don't know how you solve that exactly. Like, I think it might help if it were somebody of color in that role instead of Chris Hemsworth, who's like so Aryan. Um, uh, yeah, but you know, you get Chris Hemsworth because he's a guy who you can believe can pull this action off. Like, right. Like, even if he's not Thor, he's still a fucking beast. Like, he is a giant human. So, like, I get why they wanted Chris Hemsworth. Right. And I think um, there's and- a little bit of an attempt here to sort of set him up as being, like, the next Schwarzenegger or the next Stallone. Because that's a type of action hero we don't have anymore. Because if people are in action films, they're also, in these big ensemble superhero things where the character is more important than the actor. Also, uh, if you go back to that era of movie, mm-hmm. those are way more problematic. Oh, no. You just for, don't remember. For sure. It's traditional in a lot of different ways. And, and I think that this movie kind of... It doesn't totally get around it. It's not totally off the hook, mm-hmm. but it does a little bit uh, get a little bit of leeway because of a couple things. Um, one, David Harbour, his character is white and is kind of well, uh, it's kind of spoilers, but again, this movie's paper thin. Mm-hmm. Um, he's kind of a shit heel. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, although he play, he I think gives the best performance in the movie. Um, he does. He like acts the hell out of his one and a half scene. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's a very memorable which, part. He actually has seems like more internal depth as a character than Chris Hemsworth. Did Tyler Rake? Yeah. <laughs> God, that fucking name is so dumb. <laughs> well, what's the, um, what is uh what is um Schwarzenegger's name from Commando? I don't know. He's exactly. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Exactly. Exa- no, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Like, you might as well have named him John Kilgood. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, also, David Harpour is quickly becoming one of those John C. Riley types where mm-hmm. he makes everything he's in. He Just elevates a little, bit, a little bit. I do think they get around it a little bit by having the other badass Indian guy. Right, which um, it kind of starts out like there's a rivalry there, which is kind of like some muddy writing as far as like, who do we trust? Who do we not trust? Oh, yeah. It's um, super like, okay. Uh, he, it's like, now yeah, we trust this guy. Uh, oh, oh, okay. You were just trying to for kill him. For reasons. <laughs> yeah, 20 minutes ago, we were very invested in him dying, but now I guess we want him alive. Um, exactly. Yeah. And he gets to be a pretty cool character, too. And I was almost expecting at the end them to be like, a team and like there's now we're gonna have a series of sequels where these two are just like fucking shit up together i would have not been opposed to that i i <laughs> yeah. actually think that that uh could have been made tyler rake a little less a uh, tyler rake a little less um dumb well, no. of a character is having this foil to play off of like that's that was to me the most but he's very sad because stuff. of his six-year-old who died before the movie starts I know, and it's just like, <laughs> it's just like male protagonist fucking uh, yeah. 101. Like, they were just like, hey, remember that, that sad flashback stuff from Gladiator? Let's do some of that. Uh, like, I'm surprised they didn't fridge his wife at some point, too. Like, <laughs> how do we motivate the man to do man stuff? 
Uh, okay, uh, who do we want to kill, his wife or his child? <laughs> well, um, it makes sense because he's saving a kid. There's a little bit of like a father-mentor no, thing going on. But I mean, it's very tab A and slot B kind of plot writing. Totally. It, but I mean, also, this movie's like damn near a video game. Like, I don't is. love saying that because I feel like that's a little overused as a criticism for action movies that move a certain sort of way. But this really feels like a video game sometimes. I I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing, though. I My no. biggest complaint about this movie was I wanted them to lean into that a little bit more. Like, this is a dumb action flick, and I know we don't want to make Chris Hemsworth the funny guy or whatever, but I feel like they could have had a little more fun with it. Right. Uh, because it's kind of grim. It's kind of a... I think they try to put a little too much weight on some of these deaths. You know, he just slaughtered like 80 people. So why is this one different? You know what I mean? Like, right. I, th- I think that, that they should have just leaned into the fact that it's a dumb action movie. And it because w- it is a dumb action movie. And because of that, it's fun. And it doesn't need to be like super postmodern or super meta. Yeah. But to just let us revel in the action a little bit instead of trying to make us feel guilty at the same time. I think it toes kind of, trying to toe kind of a weird line of, you know, reveling in the action, but also it's, you know, occasionally they do a little bit of finger wagging with it. And it's like, yeah, well, yeah okay, yeah. I don't know that you can have your cake and eat it too in this case. Like, let's just let it be a dumb action movie. Like... Let it fulfill the promise uh, that the Expendables gave us. I don't know. It's fine. It's If you're into that sort of throwback movie, I think there's a lot of fun to be had with it. I just wish that the director and, and the scriptwriter had let us have a little bit of that fun, too. I agree. If they kind of, instead of going for this this more grim, gritty uh, semi-serious tone throughout the whole film, especially with the protagonist. If they had kind of geared a Just little bit closer little. to to maybe something like a desperado tone, where yeah. there's a there's you know a kind a sort of sullen, sad sack main character too, but the movie itself still is having fun with everything. Exactly, and it, it it's it's the way the world is sort of like a little cartoonish mm-hmm. it, uh, lets us relax a little bit and, and, you know, let, let that character feel that heaviness and have the weight of the world on it. But that doesn't mean the audience needs to. Right. Uh, and, and I think that is where this movie, uh, Desperado is like a perfect example of, of what I wanted from this. Uh, yeah. it, and this movie I think tries for that gritty realism, maybe a little too much in in the wrong direction. That it, right, it, because it, it starts quite... out like if it had if it had established the tone sooner that this is just a big dumb action movie. Like if I it, if if I wasn't figuring out by the first twenty twenty five minutes, it's like oh this is Rambo, this is or this is Commando, yeah. or like those type of movies. Like I had to come to that conclusion if I had. If it had set itself up more like that from the beginning, then it wouldn't have wouldn't have felt as problematic sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Because it's it's like the movie is aware it's a movie, and and yeah. so it's all in good fun, kind of. It 
And especially, like, the way the character's introduced. I could have just let my guard down a little bit more and and just sort of enjoyed the ride versus trying to wonder what the message is. Because a movie like this doesn't n- need a message. No, it doesn't. It doesn't mean a damn thing. <laughs> like, exactly. Like, it's, it's, it's pretty shallow. But well-made, sometimes fun if you're watching it for the right reasons. Yes. I, I think you're... Like, the middle stretch of the movie is pretty solid. I think it's just kind of the grimness of the ending, the unnecessary grimness of the ending, mm-hmm. uh, and the kind of weird slow start, I think, uh, uh, made it a little a little hard to swallow yeah. in ways that well, it should I guess it's been. supposed to be shot a little bit like a war movie. Like, if you just walked into the middle... Like, if some of them were watching it on TV and you weren't really paying attention, you were just, like, making eggs and bacon in the kitchen while I was playing in the other room, you would maybe think sure. it was some very serious Hurt Locker movie or something. And it totally. just it just isn't that. No, and, and it doesn't need to be, and it shouldn't be. Right. Uh, so, I, I think, yeah, this movie has a hard time balancing its tone with what it is, but... Overall, it's so well shot. It's so well put together. And choreographed, yeah. Yeah, I think you'd have to be kind of made of stone to not enjoy it a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you like action movies and you don't necessarily need them to be super heavy on plot or character, like if you can just enjoy a set piece for the sake of a set piece, then this has a few really good ones. I'm giving it a B minus. That was my exact grade. Yeah. B minus. Yeah. Um, it's a little bit of a bummer because I think this could have been a lot of fun. Um, but I think this was, like you said, just sort of a, a little film experiment almost that, uh, you know, like, let's just do a fucking action movie. So uh, they pulled that off. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's go ahead now and move on to the streaming homework, which is also on Netflix. This is the film The Gift which came out in 2015. Uh, It stars uh, Joel Edgerton and Jason Bateman and Rebecca Hall. Joel Edgerton also wrote and directed the film. Um, And it was released through Bloomhouse. And this is kind of a psychological thriller, sort of in the vein of Hand the Rocks a Cradle or um, The Stepfather. Very, like, a lot of those, like, early 90s, yeah, the uh, person uh, who we kind of know but don't know that well is a little weirder than we thought he was kind of movie. Uh, it reminded me of uh, kind of like single white female or... Mm-hmm. Um, the good I mean, son. Not as sexually charged. Uh, Poison Ivy, like this... Fatal Attraction, this, like, yeah. Yeah, this, like you said, the idea that um, uh, sort of like how far does politeness go before you realize that you're in danger kind of kind of movie right yeah exactly they're, they're the sort of uh, a person insinuates himself into your life and then you ha- it gets to a place where you know nobody trusts you and you're losing trust in everybody around you so on and so yeah on. and the people in question uh jason bateman and rebecca hall are a married couple named simon and robin they just moved to california from chicago and they're looking to start a family um, they have a dog, and they live in a very nice, very big house uh, on the east side of Los Angeles. And when they're shopping for goods for the house, they run into an old friend of Jason Bateman's named uh, Gordon, 
um, who used to know him back in high school, but uh, Jason Bateman isn't a hundred or Simon, I should say, isn't a hundred percent sure who he is. It takes a little bit of like jogging of the memory, and uh, they just they let him in, have a couple dinners with him. He keeps on leaving gifts at their door because he caught their address by ear when he was buying something at Bed Bath and Beyond, um, which is sort of the first red flag we see about this character. And then as the film continues, uh, the assumed familiarity between Gordon and the small family uh, feels uh, more and more invasive, and uh, they have to take bigger and bigger steps to to uh, make it clear that they do not feel comfortable with how often he's visiting and how much he's insinuating himself into this uh, little family unit. And uh, there's some twists and turns along the way, and I'm not exactly sure how far we want to get into it review-wise, because I do think this is a film where the less you know, the better it is. But I also don't know how to talk about some of my issues with the film without getting into that stuff. Oh, interesting. Um, hmm, yeah. No, I I kind of what you're saying. Um, there's a lot of twists. There's a bit of a uh, genre playfulness here because, you know, we mentioned at the top of the review all of those early 90s kind of suspense thrillers um, that this feels very much in the DNA of. Uh, sort of a Joe Estrahousey type of feeling thing. And then there's a point in the movie when it isn't that anymore. And it felt very refreshing and kind of clever take on that material. And yes. then it kind of loses its nerve a little bit in the last five minutes, I thought, and kind of leans back on the genre stuff. I actually think I disagree. I mean, it's, I, I think it still has. It, I think it takes a lot of that genre stuff. I, I Yeah, I'm going to try to talk about this without giving too many spoilers, but I mm. guess just like spoiler warning, if this is a movie you're curious about, I suggest uh, stopping this and going and watching it um, so that you'll probably be able to pick up what we're talking about through context clues. Sure. Um, yeah, I think this movie plays with genre in some really fun, clever ways because mm -hmm. it when I was starting it, I was like, okay, this is one of those movies. Right. Uh, and it's, and because of that, because so quickly it makes you uncomfortable and makes you realize you're in one of those movies a little bit yeah. earlier than those movies typically do. Um, it sets this expectation. It sets this tone that I think they play with in some really creative ways and mm -hmm. uh and i think i actually really liked the ending becomes sort of a different type of revenge than you're expecting um, sure it's still psychological but it's in some ways i think almost almost more fucked up uh it's fucked up like i yeah, don't know for sure and and uh, it a lot of interesting different ways too. Um, I am going to open up a spoiler zone for this because I think I have to just talk about why the ending doesn't work for me because I do like this movie a lot. So officially now I am going into spoilers. So we find out midway through the movie that not only does Simon remember Gordo pretty well, 
but that he was very instrumental in ruining his life as a teenager by starting a vicious gay rumor about him that ended up getting him beat half to death by his homophobic father. And sent to a private school. Yes. So this gets revealed at about like the two thirds mark and changes the whole game. And then Mm -hmm. this shortly after that reveal, it's followed up by a very uncomfortable, almost kind of funny, but in a really like uncomfortable, awkward way scene where we see Simon as a bully. And this is interesting casting too, because you, we normally see Jason Bateman as this kind of stuffed shirt, um, sort of wet blanket of a character that in everything. And you would normally think of Joel Edgerton as being more of the alpha of the two. Um, and I think that that was, it was cast that way on purpose. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and yeah, t- I think of Jason Bateman as sort of a, a, usually a little bit of a, if not sarcastic, but, um, a little bit of a, uh, 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 you know, he sort of gets typecast as like the everyman a lot. Um, that right. kind of thing. Um, but, but yeah, but of the two of them, you would think that Joel Edgerton would be the high school bully and he would have been totally because he's a he's a little bit more intense he's a little bit more um he has uh, a bigger build and in the beginning of the film they introduce gordon as being ex-military so mm -hmm. you know and he's just like this like middle management a-hole uh the jason bateman character and by the way how many films has and television shows has jason bateman played a person on the cusp of getting a promotion Right? Yeah. It's it's th- like <laughs> it's it's almost like an inside joke at this point. But that's that's what I mean. He's so perpetually he's almost going to be promoted his entire career. Almost has like well, again, they're trying to make this like thing of like relatability in this yeah. everyman-ish. It's oh, the- it's almost like you know how uh they say like the one of the cool things about Spider-Man is anybody could be under the mask. That's mm-hmm. why Spider-Man's relatable. I think that's why Jason Bateman gets cast uh, so much is because I- any standard uh, uh, hetero white male can see themselves as Jason Bateman in some way or another. Right. Um, he, 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 he plays really well as the like unthreatening white bread. And, and that's certainly what Joel Edgerton is playing with here in the way that the film is cast. I'm when we learn everything that we learn about Simon's character and how how insidious and mean spirited and you get a little bit of that uh, so like when he's insisted on calling him Gordo instead of Gordon yeah. even though they're full grown adults I was yeah. I kind of got a vibe there I was like eh, that's pretty insulting for someone you haven't seen in years totally um, yeah 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 and then, like, the more and more we learn about him, we realize... But, like, I want, I want to talk about that, because that was something that I think this movie did really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, with that kind of thing, setting this expectation of uh, for boiled rabbits, right? Right. Um, because, like, he he is right off the bat being, like, a fucking dick, and I'm like, oh, don't do that, man. This guy's gonna <laughs> go fucking psycho. He's gonna fucking, you know, like... Yeah. And, and so, I think the movie is really smart about the way it does reveal Jason Bateman's true character, because at first you're like, you're like, no, 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 don't do that. Don't be an idiot. And then you're like, oh, you're a fucking asshole. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and you almost figure that out before the movie tells you everything that you need to know. Um, yeah. And that's why I thought that that was so clever, because it ended up being a genre game where they bait you with the Hand the Rocks the Cradle stuff. And then by the two-third point, they say, no, this isn't a film about letting a psycho into your perfect white picket life. This is actually a film about toxic masculinity and how yes. that manifests. And also there's sort of a bait and switch with the cast because, and the trailers didn't really make it feel this way, maybe on purpose, but Rebecca Hall is the main character. Yes. This is her story. And it's about these two men in her life. Um, and how the interplay kind of works about these kind of clashing personalities. And really she makes the biggest arc and change. The other two characters don't change at all. <laughs> no, um, no, she's the one who learns more about the world because of this situation, which is why for me, the last five minutes, and I'll just, again, this is a spoiler zone. I'll spoil it. There's a scene towards the middle of the film where Rebecca Hall passes out and then she wakes up in bed and she gets the, you know, this, this, sort of speech from her husband who's concerned about her taking pills, etc. Fast forward into the movie, they finally get pregnant. They haven't seen Gordon in a long time because Jason Bateman put a a um uh, restraining order. A restraining order on Gordon. So they pretty much have him outside of their life now. Although Rebecca also, Hall doesn't uh, know all of this. Also, yeah, she there that scene where Jason Bateman bullies him, mm-hmm. um uh, he, you know, he he makes it very clear, like that he he he's very much like asserting his dominance over him, and and like, yeah, we learn we learn that this guy is you know kind of a pathetic sad sack. Like he his job is he like runs a trivia night thing, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, and so like he's not doing well, and and so after that sort of confrontation, it seems like the the threat of him is gone. Right. So again, this is why the last the last little tag on this movie doesn't work for me because it puts into question whether or not Gordon broken entered their home which which he does. We do know that much and may have raped Rebecca Hall's yes. character in her sleep and impregnated her as like his final act of revenge and set this up for months in advance. And we get the scene where where uh, Jason Braitman is breaking down, watching all of this on like a DVD that's sent to him, which also like internal movie logic doesn't work because he could just take that to the police and be like, this guy broke into my house and maybe raped my wife. Um, Well, okay. okay. Yeah. And it leaves you on that. It leaves it on like, she's decided that Jason Bateman is a jerk and she doesn't want him in his life anymore. He loses his job because he lied about that to get the promotion. And then it's supposed to be like this grand karma thing. But then I'm like, I, it just makes a much less interesting movie to me because I am I think it would have been a much more interesting movie if we find out that Jason Bateman is the villain the whole time. Well, he was. I mean, so I, here's why I, I have I, a I really did, hard time feeling bad for Gordo. You're not supposed to. Like you said, this is this is a movie about toxic masculinity you're not supposed to feel bad for either of them they're both bad people Mm -hmm. uh you you know is gordo a bad person because of jason bateman who knows maybe certainly Um, probably yeah uh but but he's not innocent either like he's not 
you know, he's so obsessed with this this weird revenge plot that he's a bad person too. Like like you said, this is Rebecca Hall's movie. She's the main character. So yeah, I I actually really liked the ending because it made it made the um to me it twisted the the genre convention away from the threat of simply physical violence because usually that's what these things devolve into is like they get so crazy that they're eventually in their yeah. kitchen with a knife or whatever yeah and I liked that it didn't that it didn't go there um the only thing I will say about the ending is we are following Rebecca Hall's character through the whole end of the movie and then it does shift the perspective to Simon in a way that I don't think we get the necessary resolution because really he's not the victim. If, mm-hmm. if Gordon uh, did in fact rape her, which we don't know, we don't know if he did or not. It's, it's left in question. Uh, in, in my head canon, he didn't like, this is just to fuck with, um, just to fuck with Simon because a big part of the way Simon ruined his life was he didn't tell the truth about this lie. Right. Uh, uh, and, and so, you know, I don't think that the character would have done that to Rebe- uh, Rebecca Hall's character because she was always nice to him. She was, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't think he doesn't seem like that type of evil. Um, right. And so I do feel like we needed a little bit more of a resolution with her since she is the point of view character. But I think like the way, the way Simon and Gordo like combat each other is really interesting. Uh, and you know, Simon does it through, um, physical intimidation and bullying and gaslighting and, Mm -hmm. and lying. And, Gordo does it with like these, this weird psychological torture. And what I wanted was to see her character be truly free from both, both of these. Uh, in, in the so way the weird. movie does, and it does end it a little too much on their beef, which I don't, I, so I do think we needed that weird psychological head fuck ending because this is still, you know, a psychological thriller, and if right, if I think I almost kind of feel like that was like a reshoot or something. Like the in my in my mind, it would have ended perfectly at the scene where she tells tells Simon at the hospital, "I don't want to go home with you," um, after they've just delivered their baby, and we see him at his lowest and then maybe you could have like a little tag at the end of Gordon being like, ha ha, like I ruined your life. Like that would be enough for me, but I know but that again, that wouldn't be enough for a general audience. They would be like, what the fuck? Where's my big ending where somebody gets their head like beaten down with a iron ironing board or something. Exactly. And so and, they, and- I feel like he had to write like his version of that to satisfy a bigger, more general audience. Yeah. And, and, I, I absolutely think so. I would have, I would have been a little disappointed had there not been some sort of weird uh, revenge plot. Like, had it just ended there, I would have been like, "Wait, what? So what? What was all of that build up for nothing?" Like, I think I I needed that firm turn where we learned that the Gordo is 
an irredeemable psychopath. Like, I, I think the movie does need that. What I think it also needs is for Robin to have an ending that gets away from both of these assholes. Yeah. Um, like, he, you know, uh, it ends with him, like, confronting her in the hospital one last time. And I didn't, uh, like, I didn't like that. Because, like, I, I think that, that that's where the movie slips. It's not that there's still this psychological headfuck or whatever. I do think it needs that. It's just that all of a sudden the ending becomes focused around the male characters when we've had a really interesting female character that we've been following all of a sudden. But once she's in the middle, like literally in the middle of it, we don't get any resolution on her story as I think where, where the movie really slips up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just generally for me, it's like the last five minutes was a little, eh, I could have, I loved it. Used a little bit more on it. Um, I was, I was like, oh man, that's fucked up. That's a weird, that's a weird revenge. Well, this is a, this is a strange movie, which leads me to my last point. I really like Joel Edgerton as a filmmaker and as an actor, because he is a fucking weirdo. (laughs) <laughs> like, you know, he's this like very handsome Australian dude is who he could handsome? just yeah, he's Australian. Um, no, no, I said, is he handsome? Well, I think so. He, I think I I think he's got like a weird face, but I I think he's <laughs> incredibly talented. Uh, but like, uh, him and his brother, they you know they're like part of that whole um, Australian crime film world that you know like david michaud and people came out of um and then they you know he very easily could have just done like leading man stuff or dumb action movies or whatever but he's always even in like a movie like boy erased which i believe he directed as well which is a little oscar baity but he plays the least likable character in the film which is the ex-gay pastor who's trying to convert people using psychological torture um and he like puts himself in a terrible mullet and big glasses and like he loves to play these weirdo roles yeah he's Um, a character actor yeah and you wouldn't necessarily think that about him based on his type um but he's you know and the fact that he writes his own material and stuff like that so i think He's super talented and kind of underrated in the film world right now, both as an actor and as a director, uh, filmmaker. Um, And I really like this movie a lot, despite my misgivings with the very end of it. I, I, I really enjoyed the ride of it. I loved the way that it played around with like genre convention. And, yeah, me uh, too. and I love what it ultimately kind of says is trying to say about masculinity and toxic ma- masculinity and these things. And bullying and the rest of it. Yes, I do think it falls... There's also kind of like, maybe not as overtly, but kind of a class thing going on in the movie as well. Yeah. Oh, totally. No, I I agree with you. I really enjoyed this movie for all those reasons. I I think that, again, my big criticism is it is trying to take on toxic masculinity in really cool, interesting ways, but because of the ending stumbles a little bit it does sort of fall into some of those uh uh things that it might be critiquing which is interesting i think um but yeah i agree joel Egerton 
very talented actor. Uh, after this, I'm very interested in him as a director as well. Like, um, even though I don't think the ending's perfect, uh, overall, this movie, I think, is really thrilling uh, and and interesting. And you never quite know what you're going to get. And... I think it's a good uh, it's a good part for Jason Bateman too mm-hmm. to like kind of play against type a little bit. Yeah. Um. So and, overall, and Rebecca Hall's you, great at everything. Oh yeah. yeah, she's 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 the heart of this movie. Like without her, it, this would be kind of unwatchable to just see Jason <laughs> Bateman be a fucking asshole for two hours. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Cool. So, um, uh, you. What's the what's the uh, next streaming homework you have for us? Uh, the next when we do our next proper normal episode, we will watch "Hunt for the Wilder People," mm-hmm. which is movie by directed by Taika Waititi that is now streaming on Hulu. Yes. Uh, so, if anybody has anything to say about that film or any of the films we talked about in this episode, um, go ahead and reach us at our email at mcguffinpod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on our Instagram or Twitter at mcguffinpod and on Facebook at facebook.com slash mcguffinpod. Uh, you can follow me over at uh, BC Cassidy, both on Twitter and Instagram. And you can also read my writing that I do every other week over at the Idaho State Journal's Movie, Arts, and Entertainment page. Um, you can listen to this podcast and leave us a star rating and a review over at Stitcher Radio, uh, Player.fm, and iTunes, of course. Uh, helps people be able to uh, expand the visibility of the show and uh, all of that jazz. You, you can, can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Keith Foster Kid. You can also follow me on Instagram at Sticky Note Aesthetic. If uh, you happen to be listening to this on our website, McGuff.in, be sure to read the other reviews and articles written by the McGuffin staff. And I believe that is it. That is the episode. You drown not by falling into the river, but by staying submerged in it. Bye.